yeah, Taylor, tell me everything about non-standard philosophy that, that you can, the most, the three most important things. The three most important things. Sorry, that's not a helpful frame. Three interesting things that stand no, out to you right now. It's, yeah. it's, it's good. You know, one thing that I think that you and I both could say something about is, so one of the things that I think is interesting, which were probably the point three, if Laura well or detailing it, um, but I think we should start with is that, you know, non-standard philosophy is is one of these these names, these first names uh, that Laurawell is has has taken to using in what we would consider kind of the cusp of or maybe the beginning of the current phase of non-philosophy, which is philosophy five. So this is this is where Laurawell is getting into um, quantum mechanics and extracting a kind of eminent kernel from it and then elaborating this notion of the generic and generic science which relies upon uh abstract algebra idempotence these other things that we can go into but the the one the thing i would start with is non-standard philosophy why why this new term right what what does larwell indicate the the few indications that he gives and there is throughout the book these scattered like, like why, why, why do why why give I up move the, non-philosophy yeah. to non-standard philosophy? Yes, that's right. Right. That's right. So there's, there's something interesting that Larawell does. He'll, he, he has, he gives these little sprinklings of indication, um, every, every, it almost seems like 20 or 30 pages, sort of like, you know, it, you know, in non-philosophy in the days of non-philosophy, which I think would be kind of <clears throat> maybe the mid eighties to, uh, the early to mid aughts, you know, for for two decades, he's he's trying to elaborate this notion of non philosophy, and that notion itself is concentrated in the hyphenated non that that prefix, and he really is trying to elaborate this case that, um, sort of intuitively at first, I think, but later on he develops this explicitly, especially in philosophy five uh, with non-standard stuff, but he's, he's elaborating the non in the quasi metaphorical sense of non Euclidean. Right. And to that end, he'll use terms like, um, you know, restricted philosophy and, um, or actually it's restricted non-philosophy and, uh, and, and generalized non-philosophy. Um, so for him, the, for example, Deleuze himself, um, turns to Feuerbach, who is one of the first to like try to concretize what non-philosophy could could stand for, you know, outside of a a simple everyday notion. And uh, Deleuze, I think, in I believe as early as chapter one, if not in the introduction, that's one of the first footnotes he he points to to Feuerbach and and this notion of a non-philosophy, and and Deleuze himself is articulating this, but he comes back to it in what is philosophy. Right, and it's it's one of the ending um, these these really this monumental line that um, the philosophy, uh, you know, that there's um, gosh, I'm trying to remember it. Philosophy, the philosopher must become non-philosopher, right? Um, and I think that's why they end that last footnote by like pinging Laura well again and uh, in what is philosophy and sort of saying like, 
like, hey, why wouldn't non-philosophy also be non-science? In this, um, uh, in this provocative way, but they still understand um, non-philosophy based on like Spinoza's one all. And of course, Laurel makes that like a thing. But uh, to get back to the original thing, just to sum up, um, one of the main reasons he gives up the term or he, he doesn't give it up. He actually wants to like keep it in this kind of um, crystallized state, but show that it's, it's not yet the most generalized, that non-standard philosophy is a much, it's more generalized and particularly because um, Larwell says that part of the material of philosophy is, is this analytic symptomaticity of philosophical decision. And it's particularly philosophy's resistance. So one of the things that non-hyphenated does already, I think, in appearance, in objective appearance, is it uh, immediately elicits a uh, a very strong reaction from the philosopher because the non indicates um, most denotatively a negation. And of course, I think this is one of the reasons if, if Larwell is honest and he kind of boils it down to this is that um, it gave rise to too many misunderstandings. You know, Emerson talks about it's to be great is to be misunderstood and Nietzsche kind of uh, elaborates this again. And I think there's something like Nietzschean hidden uh latent in in the non in the in the resistance of philosophy because it seems like it has to be this battle right that non-philosophy or like he like when his, his discussion with derrida right he he kind of i think he wants kind of to, to be this rebel but in the end of the day if the resistance elicited by philosophers is based on the confusion that it's about a negation that it's about a struggle that that philosophy must be destroyed um, then the resistance solicited is perhaps vital to the the project, but is but 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 does it further understanding? And in fact, um, in fact, is counterproductive. There's something counterproductive about non philosophy, despite all the warnings, despite all of his like, hey, listen, this is how I read the non, the moniker of the non standard. Um, it's it provides for an elaboration of a standard type of philosophy. And this is what Larwell has always like called la philosophy, right? This definitive art article uh, being kind of glued to, you know, philosophy as a quote unquote whole or plane or whatever that the non-standard, if it, it, it it goes back, I think, to, again, his original use of the non in the non-Euclidean sense of the, it's, it's like the special uh, relativity and uh, general relativity, right? Like Larwell wants, wants for um, a theory of philosophical decision to be like the most encompassing and generalized. And so to that end, I think this is why the, the phrasing of non-standard philosophy, uh, I think, potentially can be much more well-received, not just by uh, scientists, um, physicists, or whomever, thinkers in general, but, but also philosophers, that the philosophers and philosophy itself could, be, could, could find thinkers who would, whose first uh, sense of reading 
non-philosophy is no longer negation, but you know, it's a suspension of a of a standard type of philosophy. And who, I mean, yeah, there are historians of philosophy, but most philosophers, I assume today, are already attempting to work within um, explore non-standard rather than standard philosophy. Right? I mean, if we so distinguish they, historians they, from yeah, yeah. critical thinkers. Well, uh, I, I was just going to say, like, in the spirit of what you're saying here about how we should read, you know, this turn in Laura Wells' nomenclature and, you know, his, the, the name he chooses to give this master work, right. This non-standard philosophy, you're, you're sort of, you're, you're emphasizing you're, that it's, there's the positivity to this change. And I guess, yeah, like maybe, and I mean, maybe this is one of the hard bits about Laura Well, but like maybe we could try to construct I guess either a model of the standard that it opposes or again, in the spirit of your answer, the positive, because I mean, the, the, what I took from your point about Feuerbach is that like Feuerbach was the first to try to, you know, make a concept of non-philosophy that is to see it as something positive yes. and not just a delimitation of the out the philosophy and it's outside yes. that, and this is what they're, I think they're getting at and what is philosophy that you kind of flicked at was like, mm-hmm. you know, how does that, what, why does philosophy need non-philosophers? Right. Um, in other, why does, yeah, anyway, I'm tempted to do a Plato thing about why do the guardians need the rest of society? Right. Um, and you know, brave new world answers this question. They'd eat each other alive, right? A society of philosophers can't, can't actually yep. co- you know, consist. But. Yep. No, that's a good point. Keep, keep going. If you, if you want, well, I was just going to say, like, just trying to frame the, 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 maybe that hints in overtones about kind of Larwell's positive vision for a non-standard philosophy that has a different, like, eth- ethics of decision. I don't know how to say it, but that's ethical a, that's a, I, of decision. Yeah. I like that. Um, it's also nice, not just an ethics, well, it's an ethics of decision in the most uh, Spinoza's way, right? Because it involves a praxis. It involves a... Um, you know, one could say it, a unified elaboration of, of theory and praxis. Um, and I think Larwell would most likely say under praxis because, you know, it's always about like non-philosophy produces statements in the most general sense. Um, and a lot of those statements, however, are, um, it's the it, there's a transubstantiation of the old wine of philosophy and and an old flask uh, that kind of on the spot invents discovers the the new wine and 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 provides the or axiomatic the the like the the axiomatic um, basis for this transubstantiation of the flask itself uh, as new there is that's part of the gnosis that's almost a quasi you know um i mean i'm pointing to the bible there this this question of putting old wine in, into new flasks or you know it's i think that 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 non non-standard philosophy is is always meant to be producing statements based on sort of the the whole gamut of philosophical statements and the matrices of standard decision and be able to to use 
with a with a respect both for science and philosophy to use philosophical statements, but in a way that is no longer under their own rules and um, and language games, etc. That that prepares um, and conserves the identity, but prepare, prepares that material and its identity uh, to be sort of bracketed and 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 prepared for. Um, a treatment that is in the same movement, both artistic and, and scientific in a generalized way. So that's part of the transformation of, of the, uh, of a non-standard, right? That there is, there is, there is science and, and art taking place at the same time. Yeah, no, it's really beautiful. And I, I, I feel like it resonates with the, the point in what is philosophy about, Again, it's not it's not just that philosophers need someone else to talk to, right? To like give them new ideas or something. It's that philosophy needs the infinite outside as its neighbor to be friends with and to catch sight of infinite movements that go further than this world and tie tie this world together or something. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I don't know, like the the. The, the philosopher stands in need of encounters would be maybe Deleuze's point. It's like how, how philosophers create new concepts. It's, it's, it's by trying different combinations, right? Um, and, and seeing what, which, which arrangements will function. And, just, and Deleuze points to like a taste, a taste for concepts. And he says the philosopher is the friend of the concept, the one who's expert in their, I guess it's Deleuze and Guattari, right? Still in what is philosophy, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. But the philosopher's the, f- the friend of the concept. He's the one that knows which which ones hold hold up, which ones fall apart. Right. And, and he he says there, he says philosophy is this creative practice of concepts, and yeah, that it's like that it's wholly beyond science or something. I don't know. It, like he, they they go to some lengths to sort of try to put science, art, and philosophy on the same playing field, but it's 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 clear that philosophy is much closer to the like certain infinite movements of the outside and doesn't have to like refrigerate it down to infinite slowness. Right. Like science does or something, you know, right. They have different speeds and, um, what, what is it? I, I forgot. Bergen, Bergen lays it out. Well, that, that they have different multiplicities that they involve. And, um, Gosh, I, I can't do justice to it, but it, it, it's um, philosophy entertains um, infinite variations, and science uh, tackles variables. Art tackles varieties. Are they all involved? Like she, but she makes it much more a beautiful way. But but yeah, that would be they, they're all these different. Um, they're different multiplicities. And maybe that has to do with the different speeds or the or different um, usage of the plane or the, or the different traversing of the plane. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd have to go back to what is philosophy to, to really I, unpack I would, that. I would want to give you like some topological answer about how it's like that with the concept, you it's haptic or intuitive. You can traverse it all in an instant and you, you're in this point of absolute survey or at right. moving an infinite speed through all the component parts. They don't come in any order. Right, right. Um, which again hints at these infinite movements that like don't make sense in a you know rationalistic scientific 
kind of framework, but you can nevertheless philosophize about it and so on. Right. And like develop a, a taste for the concepts, you know, that like that leads you to make good decisions in their construction. Um, but I, I guess Laurel is like, it's, it feels almost a platonic point, but I guess obviously that's my bias and like, that's what I've been like, like thinking about, but that like that philosophy just, you know, not with the non-standard philosophy tries to be more in harmony with art and science and their, their practices and tries to form, I don't know. I, I really, I thought this was a really beautiful point about like sort of a, a, a generalized art and a generalized science and like hinting at n- new kind of generic practices like those things, you know, like for in, in development and the, and the hint of like new functional specialization at that level, you know, like a new, a new kind of pure variation, you know, that's unleashed in the world. And it, and it, 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 it's, it's like, it hints at this, like, you know, very beautiful possibility, I think, right. Like of a, of a transformation of, you know, the means of cognition. Um, and it's, you know, there's, there's, I mean, I, I feel like, like Deleuze's theory of philosophy is concept creation has as it's like major advantage, this, this productivity, this idea that to think is to produce a problem and to, and to find, you know, tasteful concepts that like w- can work it, you know, and like traverse it somehow, um, in, in order to like, to, to, to think something new, to produce, to produce a new thought. Um, you, you have to, it's like, it's two operations, right? You have to like smooth the plane and then you have to populate it with concepts. And I think one of the points that they emphasize is that it's, even though the concept may have the same name, it, it changes its role and its function depending on the, the plane you're operating in. Um, so figuring out what plane you're working on is, is, is important too. Um, and yeah, I, 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 they talk about there's zones and bridges between concepts. And I mean, right. I guess the idea is as you shift planes, the zones and bridges rearrange and there's a new conceptual architecture. Um, and, it, and it seems maybe Laura well is saying, well, fine, but we need to promulgate building codes if we're, you know, to be actually in harmony in the city of thought with science and art. We need to be structuring our you know, like our architecture that, I mean, it seems to be like to permitting an openness to being like genuinely transformed by that external encounter that Deleuze and Guattari are like, you know, making, making seem like a necessary part of it, but sort of failing to actually, I don't know, fully, fully get rid of the, the elements of transcendence still left in philosophy maybe is, I guess one of the ways I think about what Laurel's doing is trying to like, to, to sort of fully eminentize thinking and, and to anyway, I don't know. Yeah. The eminentize is a great um, verb that I'm not sure if I've seen outside of um, Laura Wells work, uh, specifically the non-standard philosophy. Um, Is that where you picked it up or, or, or or did you see that uh, somewhere else? No, no, it, 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 it seemed the natural way to capture this thing he's trying to do is like this. Yeah. Um, to like, to, again, to rid philosophy of the, the last elements of transcendence that it still retains. I feel like this is where he gets the eminental language from. It's like the transcendental, but purged of all the transcendence actually. Right. Like um, not just in this positivistic 
kind of way that ends up rediscovering transcendence at the end. Right. Yeah. Um, Immanentizes is a good verb. The other way he describes it, or, I mean, I think you were speaking perhaps more on, hmm. there's a way in which immanentize uh, specifically is, is, is a good way to describe his, um, for example, his way of treating, you know, uh, superposing flows of, imminent flows of lived experience and but uh there's he he talk he goes into um and you know i i found this concept interesting from my own point of view because i'm a translator but he talks about a, a generic translation of well, that is um cool. of it's there's there's like three inputs right there's uh, there's philosophy or one could say standard philosophy. There's, um, there's science and, and there's, um, there's also quantics or what he calls quantics, right? He, he when he, he looks at, um, when he looks at quantum mechanics for what quantum mechanics can provide, for understanding superposition in this way that would um, be able to give a, a kind of a lens or a or a, a framework in which to conceive of the potential, like almost infinite translation, quote unquote, of philosophical statements into non-philosophical statements, and this is what he he calls generic translation. It's the it's it's the it's the whole operation from start to finish, which you know, um, in the early days, he would say that part of that preparation before the uh, the reworking starts or before the experiment starts is um, is, is 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 not only choosing like what we find to be the most interesting uh, statements insofar as that it like lends itself to the operation already and it's it's already kind of the philosophers already given us the symptoms occasions materials that that call upon us obviously our biases come in and prejudices etc uh at our reading habits but um then there's a there's a way in which those statements themselves can can be um taken to a certain one could say limit of unilaterality that 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 prepares for the most fruitful engagement, um, and all of that is 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 somewhat subjective and in, into what is produced. But uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to rely on a human subject to judge, right? It it can be uh, non philosophical statements themselves can be found wanting within the very framework of the axiomatics because it's it's always this question of of a, of a superposition. It doesn't end in some sort of teleology or final product where we can say, okay, we've translated all philosophy into non-philosophy. We're good to go. Like we've, you know, it's always one time each time, right? It's not once and for all, um, which I think removes transcendence from this messianic notion of, of say a future Christ or the, you know, the to come, um, of, 
a generic salvation or a salvation of generic humans. Um, does that make sense? I guess that's, that's, you it's, can see. It's difficult, it's difficult <laughs> yeah. to extricate the transcendence from the language. And I think that's like, there's a, there's a strange Heraclitian, like, I, I don't know. There's so, so one, one thing I keep thinking about is, and, it, and it's, it's like a point I keep returning to, and it probably annoys you at this point, but this, and I, but I feel like Larwell says something like it or, or like describes non-philosophy this way at some point, which is that it's like it, at some moment in non-philosophy, it, it appears because non-philosophy has like as one like arm of its operation and identity function, it, it's like, it can be, it has a moment of identity with every other philosophy. And it, and it's not, I don't know how to say it. It's not like special among philosophies or something, right? It's just like this, it, it, it tries to realize, and I don't know, that, that, that was the nice, that, I don't know. I, li- I like the thing you're saying about the axioms and maybe we could go deeper into that because I, I yeah. think there, I think that's like maybe the heart of some of this stuff is the, is the programmatic formulation of the experiment that is, that enables a crucial decision and, you know, and, and, and it, and achieves this transcendental effect of like producing certainty in a subject by virtue of an encounter. Um, but does it in an imminent way that's, that's mechanical. Um, but here, right. Me, uh, Mallory and sorry. It's okay. Sorry. How much of that did you get? Did it, did it make sense? Yeah, it did. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Responder, give me a moment to reflect. But yeah, yeah. Take your time. I was just thinking about the the or axiomatic. Yeah. Brought up, and he calls. He talks about um, you know transforming generic science, which is kind of the first thing to be built um, from the three inputs of science, philosophy, and quant and quantics. Um, that generic science. And it's it's a, it's a generic science of philosophy on the one hand, but it's really more of a generic science of humans in the last instance, or you know, uh, humans in person, man in person. But it's to transform generic science into an or, or axiomatic science, and it's this portmanteau word, right, of oracle and axiom, and um, it's it's superpose it's superposing the axiom and the oracle. And I think he would want to say under the axiom if I had to speak for him. Um, and what the reason being is in some sense, the Oracle is reflective of the materiality, the materiality of philosophy. And, 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 that's because philosophy as this occasion material symptom that provides uh, the kind of it, it provides the, the, the basis for what is to be reworked. It provides, as I said, in these three different ways, uh, but it's, he'll call it now. He talks about it now is this, uh, that philosophy plays a hermeneutic role. It's this hermeneutic assistance to sort of fleshing out, uh, incarnating the, the axioms. It gives the axioms their, their, uh, 
their means of embodying themselves, <clears throat> of incarnating themselves. And, um, and, and so it's, uh, I think it's that, um, I'll talk about it a different way though, in, in the algebraic sense or in the relativistic sense, right. Or in the quantic sense, I mean, he'll, uh, he'll say that the, the or axiom like says or speaks a single conceptual particle, um, in a single particle, it's the superposition of the mathematical axiom and philosophical decision. So it's this, it's this uh, superposition of, of math and philosophy, but subtracted from their principle of sufficiency. Uh, it's, it's superposing them in this generic way that constitutes, um, it's like inscribing uh, the last instance in uh, this this spoken axiomatic form, and I, I think that in that sense, and he'll talk about the saying in the said, and I think one of the the people he, you know, he's he, I think he's uh, definitely thinking within the field or in response to um, someone like Levinas who. Interesting. Uh, elaborates this in terms of an ethics of engaging um, the other who from a height of transcendence. And I think that Laura well uh, conserves a lot of this ethics of, of the other and the stranger in a, in a, in a way that um, has the same ethical import. And yet it's not a relation of height and transcendence in the, in the way that Levinas uh, elaborates it, but inspires this generic ethics um, that I, is, I love this. Is, this is, is, is beautiful. Yeah. yeah. That's potentially eminent through idempotence. And that's where things get interesting uh, too. Cause that's where the algebra comes in. That's, that's a mind. That's such a mind bending place to bring in algebra. Right. But, um, I, I, I guess the the Levinas connection is fascinating, right? Um, and yeah, because there, I mean, it's not alterity per se. And obviously, he'll deconstruct every philosophical concept and and de deprive it of access to transcendence, right? And so it's a it's a question of a, a different kind of ethics and. But but nevertheless, like shares some of this, like as you're saying, some of the same import, right? But I, I'm really I'm struck by the the idea, the connection to things you've told me about Simone Dunn's ethics of the trans individual, um, and like the sense of ethics sort of beyond the collective or something, you know, like an individual faced with a decision where, um. Like there's there's no no hope to return to the collective, so you can sort of only function as a, uh, an, I don't know, an example or an inspiration. I guess Kierkegaard would possibly be something like a concrete uh -huh. instance of, of a philosopher wrestling with these these sorts of things. Um, no, that's yeah, that's good. I mean, it, yeah, it would be a question of instance that's like concealed from everyone or something in some sense, right? Uh, or like from which they're cut off. I'm thinking about this, like you're a remainder. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think about like, like all the scenarios I can think about trans individual ethics where it's like, 
I don't know. That strikes me as similar to the last instance somehow, because it's like, there is no recourse to the, the transcendent wisdom of the collective. There is only, you know, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, something beyond the individual and beyond the collective that, that you have any hope of connecting up to. And it's, it's precisely at that moment where like all your ethical things actually, you know, you have to decide, you know, like, do you, do you belong to the pure elements or do you, do you follow a program? Are you, are you an axiom? I, th- I think this is interesting. Yeah. You brought up Kierkegaard and, and I, I you know, I, the text I'm most familiar with by him is, um, is feared trembling, right? And yeah. and this, as you were bringing up the question of the collective, I couldn't help but think about, um, you know, Kierkegaard interrogating the uh, what he calls the suspension of the the teleological ethical, right? And um, this question the teleological of teleological suspension of the ethical. Uh, that that sounds better. That that's much better. Yes, but that 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 this interesting notion of Isaac as, you know, he, he is one of the, he is in the line of um, the very highest and most adored uh, lineage. And does he not have the right as one of these elected, one of these chosen ones to fulfill God's command? Right? Does he does he have the right to to surpass or surpass to go around what you say to circumvent to suspend the collective through which he should have to mediate his decision? Right? Does he have that? You know, one could talk about um, Walter Bonyamin and his notion of the mystical foundation of authority. There is something like, you know. Because you know, in, in in Roman law, and I, sh- I assume for the ancient Hebrews, there was something similar that the the father has power of life and death over the slaves, over uh, his wife, over his children, right? Um, and so they certainly yeah, they, they, the the the, co- the at least ethical code of the Jews is pretty clear. It's like you just can't murder anybody, right? But, okay, well then that would be a much different form of power. And that kind of almost tackles that question that the Romans in their, perhaps in their, you know, more imperial, I mean, obviously in their much more imperial um, collective life, they, they made each um, head of the household, the pater familius, the father, seemingly uh, in Roman law. And I assume maybe, maybe only for the, you know, the, the real true Roman citizens, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's this imperialistic, the, the father is, is the emperor. And so in that sense, he already transcends the collective, um, the collective depend on him and not the other way around. And it nuclearizes the family. But yeah, I guess that's, is that the question that, that, that perhaps the nuclear family is much more porous and open to collective decision-making there's, yeah. that's what, yeah, you're, Oh, sorry. No, don't, don't, don't let me interrupt your, but, um, but my totally done. So, okay. So I guess my thought would be, so formally we're comparing like Kierkegaard's teleological suspension of the ethical as demonstrated by Abraham and Isaac, for instance, with Laruel's, you know, quasi transcendental suspension of the, you know, metaphysical decision, philosophical decision. Eminental. He, he would say instead of transcendental, but yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I guess I want to would would am still thinking about these like, yeah, these like these limit case situations where, you know, it 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 certainly. I mean, I guess this is the question: is 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 God or in your example is the tyrant right? Are they like, how are they sutured to the collective, right? Like to the world, you know? And it seems like it, it becomes immediately obscure, right? Is the tyrant certainly one of, you know, the people and like the pop, the populist, you know, the pop, the tyrant, the, the demagogue rather, right. Is like the one who says more than anything, like gives all the signifiers of being a representative and one of the people and, um, you know, but in the service of values that end up hurting those people and, and so on. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like I, there's, there's this, it's a, it's a problem maybe of like, of differentiation and integration. I would, I would even say maybe like, I guess I'm thinking about calculus and like, you know, the kind of the, the physics of forces. Um, but, I mean, structurally, the power of the tyrant is supposed to be, like you're saying, that that of life and death and uh, at his arbitrary whim and caprice. Right. Um, And, you know, that's the that's the power, you know, again, under the context of a different ethical code. Like that's that's what's in, in effect for Abraham is is the ethical code of, as you said, the ancient Hebrews who care a lot about the value of life. Right. Um and don't want it to be arbitrarily stolen on the basis of caprice. And in, in fact, conceive that to be sort of the essence of injustice or something. Um, so, and, and you don't have, yeah. you don't have a King at least at that point. Correct. I, yeah. I mean, it's a good question. Cause it's like, as soon as you have a monarch, it, it does seem like, you know, kind of, there is a, there is a Tila suspending at least some ethical principles, some of the time. Um, and again, like God's own commands have this effect. I guess this is the kind of the equation when we're talking about God, we're talking about tyrants usually, um, which is why I think it's so kind of obsequious to like to this, to do endless praise. Um, because there, there is a, not, not that existence is a, is a tyranny. Um, but the, you know, she, she, <laughs> you shouldn't worship a demagogue, right? You shouldn't, I don't know. There's, there's something like codependent about a, a, a certain kind of faith relationship, right? Right. Right. Um, I, I like, I like where you went with that. You brought up, um, you know, in the case of, of Abraham and Isaac, you know, one immediately thinks that there's one victim and it's one potential victim and it's, and it's Isaac. Um, but, if we think about the tyrant, and I think maybe doesn't Plato or Socrates say something like this, but I could be projecting uh, that the the first sort of victim of the tyrannical regime is the tyrant himself. Um, not that we should feel sorry for him, but the question of Abraham's tyranny and and circumventing the collective decision making, who would find him insane with with the proposition that he should sacrifice his child his only son for whom he's waited so long well his only legitimate son let's say sorry um which is a different question but maybe related um 
I mean, but 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 then but then also God is 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 the tyrannical figure, right? To a certain extent, right? And so there is this superposition, if you think about it, of these different victims. God is uh, Abraham and God are are, are both uh, victim to their own tyrannical nature because um, Abraham is giving up his one legitimate son, and God is potentially sacrificing the uh, the the sort of divine the holy lineage that he has promised to Abraham with the covenant. Um, he's kind of putting the covenant to test, right? That, that, um, and, and potentially laying a trap to be a victim of, of his own will. If, but of course, you know, then it's shown that that futurality of, of, of decision is, um, puts everything at risk. It puts the line running through David and then potentially to, um, the future Christ, in jeopardy. So, so God himself, you know, becomes victim of his own, um, uh, puts himself at risk in, in that wager. So Plato or rather Socrates, right. Explains to us that the tyrant is the loneliest one, right? Because, because surely he can't, like he takes you through it, right? Like surely the tyrant can't permit people who are better than him to like exist and like give him advice. Right. Um, and which is like a fascinating kind of psychological point. And then he's saying that like, well, people who are, and, and, and then, you know, basically he'll, he makes the city worse. Right. And that yes, there's yes. no, there's no way to, um, for him to find an equal in, in the city where he's a tyrant. Um, basically cause he'll, he'll, you know, he, he has to, he's compelled to run the better men off because they're a threat right. to him. Right. And his, you know, people who are, peers to him or, you know, or lesser are going to be just craven or, you know what I mean? Like it's, there's, there's no one who will be his friend. Um, and I mean, this is obviously true of God too, right? Like no one's got God's back, right? At least, you know, it's a very lonely position tasked with like moral responsibility for a universe, but like apparently unable to really intervene. It's like something is, it's insanely tragic. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. And again, like it, I'm reflecting on Nietzsche. It's like the only justification for it could be a aesthetic one, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I guess that, that was the interesting thing. You, we were, we were trying to, if we try to link this question of the, the teleological suspension of the ethical, right? It's this question of the, you know, the, the transcendence of sort of, um, a semi-personal God of the Israelites of the, the promised covenant, um, you know, and then the, the, the struggle with the father, son, um, either Oedipal or not. Right. But at least this question of, of sovereignty of tyranny. I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, for, for Laura well, if we understand um, if we understand God without what is God without being, or we understand sort of God as is the 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 trans individual sphere in the sense that Simondon does. Um, there's a sense in which the what's what's at stake then is 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 no longer 
the transcendent situation of of a triad between God, Abraham, and Isaac. Um, but 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 it's but it's it's more of a um, maybe not a conflict, but it's it's potentially a superposition of of two different uh, collectives. One of which is is transcendent, and the other of which is potentially uh, genericized, made eminent, or thought from the one from eminence and what that would mean would then be that um you know abraham is um you know it's an it's it's a potentially unethical or immoral act as simon don would say because by sacrificing his son you know he destroys uh his dynasty he destroys abraham destroys the covenant destroys the possibility of of um of, of the chosen people of the, of the Israelites. And, um, and thereby it, it, it's a different, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's immoral because it's act redounds upon in an instructive way against other acts and this, this vibrating resonance, um, down, down the line of time. It's the same struggle with, uh, in the Odyssey, at least one of its cores, right? Is Odysseus's family is, is kind of condemned to this one, uh, male child per, per generation. And so, um, you know, the, the fate of, uh, of his son, Telemachus, uh, is, is also the fate of, of, you know, of his, uh, of his, of his lineage and, you know, the fate of Ithacans, if you will. The, so, um, in any, in any case, that would be sort of my take is, is, uh, is thinking, um, well, it's a term that I, that I would have to explore more, but it definitely would, would, would fall into theologians or, or those on the border of theology, like Jean-Luc Marion and, and, and Levinas. And, and, uh, and I assume, uh, Derrida to a very, great extent so i i mean i guess gerard would be the one that like also we can point to here just around the logic of like sacrifice and and mimesis um but yeah no derrida is a good point and like i honestly the thing that i was thinking about when, when you kind of i don't know like certain elements of the way you were you were telling kind of the Abraham and Isaac story and, you know, relating it to the Odyssey a little bit. I, I, I don't know. It just, it struck me that like there's a, the part of the point of it is that it's a story, right. And that it, it codes for a larger transformation of from, you know, child sacrificial ritual cult activity to slightly less homicidal, like, killing animals in sacrifice and praise of deities. Right. Um, and I, I guess this is really what I meant. I, di- I didn't mean to offend like, you know, potentially any, any those with like religious feelings. It's, it's, um, but there does always seem to be a sacrificial dimension to prayer. Um, and there's, and it's just something to meditate on. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying it's like a, a terrible thing. Um, to, to pray. I think we all, I think we all pray even to a nameless God or something. You know what I mean? Um, it's like, it's, it's a human, you know, like part of the, the psychic geometry of being a person is, is, you know, you've, there's a, you know, a spiritual dimension 
to life. And, you know, I, I think there's, I mean, Kierkegaard's question is, okay, well, to what dimension do my, like, to what extent should my, like, theological principles be able to override ethical norms, right? Yes. Um, and, you know, a- Abraham basically is is the one who decided that, you know, well, look, the, you know, the, the norm of not murdering people you know, should apply to children as well. We shouldn't just sacrifice them, right? Like, he doesn't make this argument explicitly, right? Right. Uh, but, he, you know, he, 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 he dramatizes the agony of having to give up a child and, the, and, and shows you the relief when, right. when, the, when the ram is substituted. Yes, um, yes. And it's that substitute that I think is really important here and, like, kind of hints at the mimetic logic um, the way we're already kind of like the, the, the story is meant to be multiplied and retold and we're meant to, right. to try to deconstruct, you know, like sacrificial rituals and replace them with, a, you know, healthier animal based yeah. Yeah. violence, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, I mean, the notion of, obviously this notion of Gerard and sacrifice is, is very interesting. And, and, and part of it, um, the dramatization, the, yeah, the, um, there is a, there is a drama being played out and, and, and it's, it's this, this question of the ethics of the event, right? That, that Isaac has to become equal to this event of fulfilling this command and uh, that's why, you know, because Kierkegaard makes a deal of it, like, like the story makes it take three days, right, to get to this mountaintop. It's not, it's not like go out in the backyard and, you know, put Isaac to the knife in ten minutes. Um, it is this, this agony, and obviously there's there's numerological significance to three days and etc. But, um, but yeah, so so it it is this journey of 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 at first when the command is given, obviously Abraham's not equal to it, but he gets to the threshold of becoming equal to this event. And, you know, there is a sort of deus ex machina or the, it's really what an angel appears, an angel of the Lord. And maybe Michael, I forget. It may be one of the other ones, but, um, but the other example i you find not, I mean, obviously there's Job, uh, but there's also Jonah, right. who, sort of is forced to undergo this alternate uh, becoming equal to being swallowed by the whale. And he lives there, what, three days. Um, and then does the original deed he was supposed to do, right? He became equal to going and, and disseminating a certain information that God wanted to, to spread. So um, I guess that's more obviously Deleuzian. I think with Laruel, that's about um, sort of this, uh, this, it's all, this logic has to be thought through in terms of superposition and, and idempotence and, um, you know, it's, yeah. it's different. You know, I like the, you had a really nice frame about like, oh, there's several different layers of like, you know, this kind of doubling within the structure of like, well, God is the tyrant over Abraham, but Abraham's a tyrant over Isaac. And they're, and they're kind of in this, like this chain of, of victimization or something that, um, 
and it's not clear where the last instance really is or something, you know, like does Abraham find it? I, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's clear. It's like on the one, anyway, sorry, I, I didn't, I don't mean to go. I, 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 I just wanted to flesh that out. Like I really enjoyed the thing that, that's, that structure. It struck me as. Well, I like what you're saying. I mean, this last instance, it's, um, you know, it is, I mean, Laura will say it's the one real, it's imminence, et cetera, but, the, but it's, but it involves a, uh, a, a you know, an amplitude, a, a, a futural amplitude, an amplitude of futurality and his way of speaking about it. And I think that's why I brought up, you know, future Christ. Um, and that obviously has Girardian connotations, this move from, you know, as you said, like the most primitive child sacrifices to a substitute, um, say for say a goat or, or, uh, and then, you know, the lamb of Christ, whatever becomes this, the alpha bong, the suspension of, of the sacrificial, you know, logic. Um, but you know, it's, there's, there is a sense in which, um, and Larwell doesn't put it this way, but this, this sense of ordinary man or generic humans being, uh, future Christ in the last instance, this is Larwell's kind of mystical Gnostic controversial way of reading eminence or what he calls science subject, um, the generic human subject that we are, um, in eminence, you know, we're, we're all these future Christs, um, in a certain sense. And so it's this unilateral duality of the, of the ego and the stranger. We're all strangers in the last instance, right? It's the, the fusion and the stranger under the stranger one could say but wherein the stranger is no longer transcendent right as like Levinas other but but imminent and that's where I think Larwell has to go or, or tries to go to this um, this abstract algebraic notion of idempotence right of multiplying and, ad- and adding without without changing um, the one or imminence Right, superposing these waves without them canceling out or um, or interfering in a way that would cancel it out, but actually like preserves and respects their integrity and their identity, and yet configures them configures the particles of these different identities within this waveform uh, that you know one could say in its, yeah. in, its in its own topological space like like a wave kind of or um, like fills all available space. So, I, I mean, I guess one of the things you're making me think, and again, it's like this where Larwell's like has a moment where he mirrors every perspective and then is also like trying to make possible the like non-destructive interference between perspectives um, or points of view or okay, philosophies, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but like, but look, I mean, I guess maybe I just want to like try to ground some of this. So like, and maybe it's too reductive to try to, to try to apply it so directly. But like, I mean, I think one of the problems in just like, I don't know, like trying, trying to frame a, a, like a logic of like inclusivity would be like one way to talk about like this problem. Um, is that like in order to create 
the space for it, right? Like, and to like kind of relentlessly include everyone. It's like, um, ever, and it's more like the inclusivity of different points of view and perspectives, right? Than like, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, like just like diversity for its own sake necessarily, I guess would be the thought. Um, and, and I guess I, I think I, you see this particularly in, although they're not unrelated, obviously, but like, um, I think, I think there's just like a, a problem on the, maybe on the left in general, like where this is just like more of a conscious concern um, where we're like, we're, we're relentlessly trying to include every position and we end up not actually articulating anything positive. We just end up with this platitude about like everyone should, you know, I don't know how to say it. Like, like there's, um, like we just want to start a conversation about things, you know what I mean? Like we just want to have, we just want to talk about, uh, healthcare or something and get all the, you know, interested parties together and have them negotiate something. And okay, we solved, we solved the problem. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's just a very, you know, it, it ends up reducing it to a transactional thing. And like you end up never actually articulating your own, point of view on things and because you have a vision of the world where it's it's just about you know like people need to get together and have conversations about what they want and then we can work it out but it's like sometimes they're irreconcilable um and sometimes you do need a positive framework and it's not just about people coming together you know um i don't know It, it, it just strikes me this is like a reflexive position we often fall into and i feel like laurel has like this really rigorous answer to like how you structurally like can make coherent a bunch of very different kind of points of view and, and visions of the world in a way that like recognizes their, you know, like f- not a, not a fundamental unity, but like that, that they can, the, if, if permitted to interfere with each other in sort of like structured ways, right. Like, it can be, you can be constructive. You can build something through right. that interaction. And you're not just saying, let's have a conversation about some, I think like, I don't know the, the various, like her, I don't know how to say it, but like the, um, like the kind of the philosophies of communication kind of maybe fall into this trap of we just, we, we need to just have like good regular conversations with like, you know, like, structured ideas about individual subjects and agents in the conversation and like respect each other or something like this, like communicative rationality kind of theory. Right. Is Habermas the exponent yeah. of this? I don't know very much about it, but it like, it yeah, strikes me as maybe in, in, in philosophy exemplifying at least this, this like, and it's more just a ref, like a reflex. It strikes me as reactionary at some level, right? Like that it's like, Oh, we just need to talk about it and we'll be able to solve the problem. But it's right. like, no, maybe you need to, positive framework that can bring all the wavelengths into alignment without injuring them. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, with Laura, well, I mean, you see this early, early on inspiring his work, but it becomes, um, each time each book, each essay, he re-rolls the dice and reshuffles the cards. And, and, and part of this, this, this logic of our thinking from the one, this, um, notion of unilaterality or unilateral duality of universalization, all of these, these questions of eminence of radical eminence has been from the start to provide a sort of a priori defensive weaponry against xenophobia and racism. 
And it's their framework and logic and matrix in particular that is exemplary in the most egregious way of, of, of the double bind of transcendence or the double form of transcendence in standard thought. Um, it may seem like it's on the fringes, but it, but it, but it's, but it's activating on the same principles and decisions just taken to, um, what may seem an egregious extreme, but it's, but it's like not really distending those principles, just kind of taking them to their, um, sort of their worst, uh, expression. And so, uh, this is the notion of, you know, taking from algebra, idempotence and, uh, complex and imaginary numbers, taking from quantics, this theory of complementarity of, um, non-commutativity, and um, and using philosophy as the most uh, elaborate form of the linguistic sort of materials that we have, the textual materials that we have, and, and sort of rendering them uh, to inscribe against themselves or within themselves, um, generically translated, these a priori defensive weapons. Uh, these, these, this, these a priori defense against the claims, the pretensions of, um, of the most individual and systemic forms of, of, of racism, of xenophobia, of, um, just what we might call hate. And so in that sense, the, the question of, of, of a logic of inclusion of, of eminence's inclusion is to show the foreclosure of, of such things and their worldly status and that they don't penetrate the eminence of generic humans. Um, they are these, these artifacts of, of, of power of, of this, this, this wicked combination of power and life of biotechne and they can be taken to their, most reactionary crudest forms, but the future, um, the kind of Gnostic mystical or axiomatic futurality of generic humans sort of allows for, I think in a kind of, uh, non teleological way, this notion of forming a better union of, of, of forming, um, sort of a generic alliance of humans, you know, of imminent, uh, waves of lived experience throughout the cosmos this cosmic thought of of a kind of um of a kind of alliance towards a more perfect union right but it, but but with no final finality beyond the last instance of of the one which determines everything irreversibly and it's that irreversibility i think that that eliminates um those cr the that that eliminates not just the crudest forms of racism and xenophobia, which philosophy tackles in a certain way, but the, the most right. intimate, the most insidious forms. And part of this you see in the logic of schizoanalysis that Deleuze and Guattari um, perform and, and, and elaborate through this understanding of desire as, as, the, as, as infrastructural, as, as infrastructure, and pointing out how our you know, our investments, um, our unconscious investments may be revolutionary or 
our, con- our sorry, our, our interests and <laughs> in our investments, right? We may, we may, yeah. we, you know, we may uh, consciously invest in revolution, but unconsciously can assist to be so tolerant that intolerance is tolerated, and it and inevitably, um, Larwell forecloses that question, right? He he rules it out axiomatically from the start and tries to provide further confirmation, elaboration, um, sort of axiomatic ammo to, to prove that, to, to, to prove that, that revolutionary aspect of eminence. I think it's, it's really beautiful, man. And it makes me think that like, you know, yeah, I don't know. There's something very profound about Laurel in that, in that way. And, um, and the, the thing I was thinking is that like it, it may, you know, at least point to the way to like, um, to, to, to build new, you know, kind of forms of social organization that don't rely on transcendent principles. And I really like the way you pointed at Deleuze and Guattari here, because I think they're, they're, they're central to this. And at least in some ways at the effective level, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Um, and, you know, like they, 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 they point out somewhere, they say like, look, human rights aren't enough to save us and you shouldn't bless all the depredations and destructiveness of capital because it gives you quote unquote human rights. Um, these, these rights are nowhere near, like at the very least, they're nowhere, they're not truly universal, but that's like a very basic level critique. Like the more subtle problem is that they rely on transcendence, right? Um, that they, that they embody already a bunch of transcendent death carrying kind of impulses. Um, and that we're, we're still in the grips maybe of, you know, as Gerard of like a kind of sacrificial interpretation of human beings and like, they, they had to be protected from each other and, and, and from the, d- the destruction of the collective, uh, which is definitely like a good step. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not bad that Abraham goes from about to kill Isaac to killing Abraham. You know what I mean? Um, but, and as Mark said, you know, obviously like, f- you know, free trade is better than the feudal era systems that came before it. And, you know, it's not like mercantilism is bad per se or something. You know what I mean? It's like clearly more progressive than the thing that, that it came from. And I think right. I, I like the, the point about like the non-teleological maybe yeah. <laughs> suspension that, that, that Larwell's doing here or something that you've like, you know, tried to say um, has, is like this, I don't know. Cause like superposing sounds much better than in including or something, you know, like, because I, I don't know, maybe Badu's good on these paradoxes of inclusion and exclusion and how easy it is to include something by, you know, in fact, disincluding it, right? Like including it only to the extent that it, it, you know, forms the penumbra of a situation or that it's invisible from its perspective or something. Um, it's very easy to include something as a, as a lack. Uh, obviously, it's important to be inclusive, right? Like, please don't get this, this wrong. Like, I, I'm, I, I, I guess I'm really trying to point to it's insufficiency um, yes, yeah. as, as, as a no, norm, right? It needs, we need to go further than in, in, we need to like, you know, c- celebrate and superfuse and, and, you know, like, and, and genuinely work, work through conflicts. But I, I guess the point is it's like at some, and I like the way you said this at some point it's impossible, you know, it's like we need, and we need better antidotes, deeper 
built deeper into language against certain kind of reactionary impulses. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the, obviously one of the um, contradictions of, of capitalism is, is to uh, provide the objective appearance of inclusivity through, you know, the exchange of capital, the exchange of labor and participation, etc. But on the other side, insofar as there, as we've seen, um, you know, due to historical contingencies, especially in just, if we consider the United States, it's, it's, it's more and more, um, well, the inclusivity is more and more those who are excluded from the, the 1% or whatever percentile you want to focus on who have accumulated the majority of the, um, of, of capital in a, in a certain, you know, um, almost hoarding tendency, right? So in that sense, we are, <laughs> capitalism creates inclusion by way of exclusion. And I think that that's, that's part of Laura Wells' point is to show how that's, that's already a, you know, a very uh, typified form of, of worldly transcendence. And it should be noticed that, you know, um, he has always kind of equated the, he's, he's equated philosophy's uh, thought form, so to speak, right. Um, as, as world, he'll equate, he'll, he'll talk about world thought and that's what sort of philosophy is. And part of that is, is adapting itself to, um, I mean, part of that, I mean, if, if you, if you think about Aristotle talking about the different forms of life, particularly the contemplative life, there is something, um, and there are exceptions to this, but for the most part, there's there's this notion that philosophy um, uh, arises due to uh, idleness or due to um, the you know what we would more charitably call leisure, and this is where Nietzsche tries to to kind of reinvigorate and um, reheroicize philosophy by saying it has to. Um, it has to become psychologer and the psychologer, the psycho- psychologist, he, he analyzes and, um, and, and attempts to ring the hollow idols that, that idleness brings. Um, this is why thought has to resonate, has to dance, has to have light feet. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, like, yeah, I think transcendence. Yeah. The lazy. Tra- I was going to say transcendence is the laziest possible answer. Intellect is intellectual idleness too. That's a problem for the psychologist, right? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's um, that's exactly right. And there's uh, you know this. It's a question of it's a question of uh, the 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 extent to which transcendence has provided humans the tools politically economically technologically to uh to ritualize hierarchy and the spirit of hierarchy and and you know one can think of all sorts of different philosophers from plato to to rousseau to nietzsche and beyond um you know this i mean rousseau's question is is very simple right where 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 is the origin point and i think derrida tries to read Rousseau in that light by 
you know, saying that the origin is um, is always already lost or always already sort of displaced itself. And um, but at the same time, you know, Rousseau wants to try to bring thought experimentally to this this um, this moment, this key turning, um, this moment where we are ejected from Eden or we eject ourselves from Eden um, through recognition, right? And, and I think Laurel is very keen on this, that, that philosophy and the philosopher, it is always, this double transcendence is, is typified or metaphorized in, in the notion of specularity of, of the, you know, of, of this mirroring or the self mirroring uh, of thought, this kind of navel gazing, one could say of, of thinking. And, um, and so to that end, I think, you know, Marx's dictum about it's no longer sufficient to interpret the world. It's about transforming it. I think that that's also trying to say, look, the philosopher has to earn his bread too in communism and, and, and do something with, with thinking, uh, and, and, and not just quote unquote do philosophy, but to rigorously, uh, set out to participate in the, the undermining of the standard model of the old body without organs or the, or, or, the, or images of thought that, that may have provided a, a, a springboard for a moment, but, but, um, were merely a crutch and a prison for, um, more expansive horizons for, you know, for the mutations of which thought is capable, like art has been capable, like music has been capable, like mathematics and physics have been capable, right? These, that was, I think, the original inspiration of non-philosophy to go all the way back to where we started, right? That, that the non-Euclidean was, was a kind of revolutionary mutation of, 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 of the questions and problems that physics was posing through mathematics with mathematics and, you know, art evolving from a representational model to question that standard form of art and to set it adrift in the sea of cubism and impressionism. And then obviously abstract art and, and, and Dadaism and these other, um, extreme forms. And then of course, you know, 12 tone serialism. I mean, Badu himself points to that as, as this, uh, this kind of truth procedure or this event, you know, I think that Laura wants to say, well, where's philosophy's event? You know, we have all these turns, we have linguistic turns and, you know, he'll even point out a Judaic or psychoanalytic turn. Oh, I have a structuralist turn. And, um, but at the end of the day, these are, these are merely like, like turning around themselves or they're it's mirroring itself. And so the, um, and so the, the sort of hollowing out or, or ringing out of, of images of thought, I think Laurel wants to take that up from Derrida or from Deleuze and, um, and sort of with Derrida's, uh, his, his deconstructive method sort of generalize both, um, in this, in this fusion without synthesis in this unified theory of them that, that kind of, um, inspires his whole work. I think that he's never left yeah, from them. Beautiful. Yeah. 
Sorry, no, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I was really struck by what a what a beautiful characterization of Laura Wells' project you just gave. And I, I mean, I guess I wanted to to flick back to like intellectual like like laziness and this problem of idleness, um, just like quickly because it 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 does seem like this is one thing that Laura Wells particularly resists, which like I it does seem like sometimes like this appeal to practice and do something practical does seem vulgar for something like philosophy. Right. And, or at least it's a, it feels like a reduction of its possible scope. And it seems like one of the things Laura Wells insistent on is sort of the rights of theory or something to like promulgate its own axioms and deploy them and explore them and not have to be reduced back to, to concrete praxis all the time. Um, but on the other hand, he he bemoans theoreticist idealism, but there is a sense in which he wants to, you know, both suspend certain things of philosophy in order to unleash a new kind of creative practice um, that is kind of more more unbound and isn't, you know, doesn't doesn't conform to like the idea that you know practice has to be something transcendent that you know that we we have to reduce all of philosophy to and always cash it out or something. Right. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I, just, I just thought it was is, is interesting that like this, this question of laziness cuts both ways, right. Of idleness um, as like, you know, again, on the one hand, it's like, we need to, we need, we need to recognize what a shoddy kind of explanation transcendence is. It like in, in, in general, um, and, and the way in which it does underwrite kind of like the most, you know, reactionary take on social formations and how it's, you know, this is, I, I think one of Nietzsche's most beautiful points is that it's like, we can't take the structure of like existing, you know, like social reality of existing facts, right. Um, as like, as telling us the truth about the underlying forces that we still have to do an interpretation, um, and I think that's where everything gets immediately obscure, I guess, and where we need, you know, a kind of non-philosophical light to guide us, maybe. Yeah, I mean, and Nietzsche uses the word interpretation, and he talks about, you know, um, uh, an interpretation of perspectives, and in that sense, he kind of um, stays faithful to Montaigne, who, you know, talks about what we need is interpretation of interpretations, um, and, but, but, but I think for Nietzsche, um, as you pointed out, interpretation is not, not just textual that, and Laura Well tries to stay true to this in, in, in the notions of eternal return and will to power applied to texts, um, through generalized deconstruction and sort of, um, Deleuzean, Simondonian serialism, this sort of early concoction that Laura Well works with. It's about atextual forces. You know, it's about what texts produce, the effects that they have. Um, and I think Laura, uh, Deleuze himself is is very is on to this this point. Um, is on to, and I think that that's why there may not be a contradiction between you know thought begins with misosophy, which is uh, different repetition, this violence uh, in thinking of thinking. Uh, in the genitality of thought, but also um, the question of the philosopher's friendship to concepts that 
there's sort of um maybe like like in the discord and accord of the faculties there's a there is a um there is an unfriendly friendship or there is a violent friendship involved um, insofar as um, what forces us to think when we actually are thinking, right? When we, when we are forced to think and, and produce something in the unconscious, right. And learn through, through that um, it is, it is unsettling, but at the same time, I think that, the thinker is still a friend in the last instance to two concepts because of the establishment of internal resonance between these amplifications that, 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 that perturb us and unsettle us, but that force us to become equal to those, to the forces of, of the event of thinking. Yeah. It's hard not to think of Socrates when you talk about the unfriendly friend and the diet, the, dialectician full of the spirit of revenge um and you know what i mean like so much of philosophy is still so so much of us are 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 still you know like full of socratic vengeance and like and it's yeah i don't know sorry we we should probably break it's been we've gone for a really long time but um this was a really good conversation i don't know any last last thoughts on non-standard philosophy before yeah um i was just thinking about the different um the um, this this the the four times socrates is named in um and in 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 non-standard philosophy and um and one of the things he he talks about the non-philosopher as a a certain Socrates midwife of new philosophies, but philosophy as hermeneutic assistance provides uh, it, it assists in the procreation of these new philosophies. Um, and those philosophies could potentially be non-standard. So this is one of the interesting things then that Laruel. Um, has ceded some ground to insofar as he no, in insofar as thinking I I idempotence and imaginary complex numbers in terms of the superposition of all these thought particles within um, within a, a radical superposition without contradiction. Um, he's able to show even if it is non-commutative like in a certain way um, non-Euclidean geometry is to Euclidean geometry the potential for philosophies to sort of provide the clones of the one right to 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 then be to then undertake the transformative um, operation you know producing them as as non-philosophies as new philosophies there's a there 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 then now is is a is more of a continuity allowed um between philosophies both not non-standard and standard so i guess that's where i would i would kind of end and um 
I think that's that's a good uh, that was a good hour and twenty five minutes. Yeah, man. Thank you. That was amazing.